Hi, everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about introverts, extroverts, alter egos, and wearing masks before, during, and after the pandemic. Love meetings? Hate meetings? Are you a subject matter expert? Do you want to lead? Are you a good talker or a better listener? Do you want to work behind closed doors? Are you a people person? Do you have thick skin? Do you have thin skin? I suspect that some of us might develop a thinning of our collective hides and become somewhat annoyed by disruption when we finally do return to the workplace. We've been able to deal with our workloads and issues at home, no commuting, and no special attire other than being camera ready. No team outings, no dinners, no crowding into conference rooms, using common areas, loud co-workers, all things that can irk people who have found a little respite from the hurly-burly of day-to-day business life. I kind of noticed that when working with people who work from home most of the time. When they did actually go to the office, they were a little touchy about little things that were just part of the normal everyday operating procedure. Nothing special, yet they felt imposed upon and inconvenienced when they had to either wait or accept that things were not the same as being alone at home, and you had to account for other people's personalities and their quirks. But a lot of folks miss that. They want to get out. They want to meet. They want to strut. They want to feel attractive and be attracted to others. They want to make some noise. They want to get dressed up. A lot of consideration has now gone into space allocation and usage in the time we have all been apart from each other. What will that mean going forward? We will see less of our collective groups and individuals than before for a substantial amount of time. Much of this is concerned not only with space, but staggering the population and ventilating the space so there is enough time to air out the space in between a specified number of resources being on-site in many places. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? How does the pandemic play into this? What are the benefits and drawbacks of the grand experiment that is 2020, which is happening as we live it, whether we know it or not? Are we activists? Spectators? Are we disconnected? An article from The Hustle entitled Zoom Doom. These startups want to make your zooming a little more human. In the early days of quarantine, the magic of Zoom felt like a blessing. One click and poof, all of your colleagues appeared in neat little rows. By now, the spell has worn off. The Zoom exhaustion feels more like a curse and a damn hard one to break. So some startups are embracing a tried and true perseverance tactic. When life hands you lemons, make freaking lemonade. Wired catalog the cottage industry of companies and projects that are trying to make connections feel a little more like the before times. I like that. The before times. It's like an old episode of Star Trek. Consider the very aptly named online town. Population everyone. 
It mashes up a standard video calling interface with a 2D world that looks like a game. You can wander in and out of conversations like Zoom and Pokemon combined. People's voices get clearer as you approach, replicating the definitely not awkward at all sensation of trying to judge when it's okay to jump into a conversation. Prefer a little private gossip? Shindig might be for you. It lets you wrangle 1K plus active participants. Wow. And video chat or text privately with other people in the giant audience. Last year, a VR-focused startup called High Fidelity from the founder of Second Life pivoted away from conquering the world one headset at a time and now creates 3D audio spaces to mimic the sounds of real life. And finally, if you need an exit strategy, it's hard to come up with an excuse for ghosting on someone's Zoom invite. If all else fails, try this tactic from Kathleen Walsh. Go ahead and pretend your delivery order just arrived. From EE Health, how introverts and extroverts are handling the pandemic. Is being an introvert or an extrovert influencing how you are handling this pandemic? Introverts tend to be energized by time alone, while extroverts draw their energy from the outside world, the people, places, and things around them. At the start of the pandemic and subsequent stay-at-home order, many believed introverts would fare better than their extroverted friends who thrive on social interaction. Introverts, check on your extroverted friends. They are not okay. Quickly became a popular social media meme at the start of the pandemic. But a recent study suggests the opposite. According to a Forbes article, the study conducted by Virginia-based research consultancy Greater Divide surveyed 1,000 American adults and found that those who scored higher on the measure of extroversion were less likely to be experiencing mental health issues due to stay-at-home or quarantine measures. Some experts contribute the surprising results to extroversion being associated with more positive emotions, optimism, and resiliency, while introversion has been linked to more nervousness and fear. The uncertainty of this pandemic may be difficult for introverts. While the study suggests that introverts may be handling the pandemic better than expected, it does not mean they are immune to anxiety or stress from the stay-at-home order. Both personality traits have faced mental health challenges during the quarantine and are stressed in their own ways. Here are a few ways for both personality traits to better cope during COVID-19. Use technology to connect with friends. For extroverts, making use of social media networks or setting up a virtual game night or friends night out could be their lifeblood. While introverts tend to thrive in solitude or quiet times, it is important that they stay in touch with family and friends as well. Technology can help introverts and extroverts make those connections while physically distancing. While a virtual meeting with several people might work well for extroverts, connecting with close friends through one-on-one -on -one video chats might prove easier for introverts. Structure your days. With many entertainment venues and events closed, introverts and extroverts are likely adjusting to a lighter schedule. Use your downtime to pursue things of interest to you. Maybe it's a new hobby, trying a new recipe, or learning a new language. Keeping busy can provide you with a sense of purpose and improve your outlook. Get outside. While we still need to be physically distant, 
there is no restriction on getting outdoors for a walk, bike ride, or just to work in a garden. A bit of sunshine and time outdoors can do a lot to boost your mood. Make the most of face-to-face -face time. From social gatherings to quick interactions with the bank clerk, we are missing this face-to-face -face time. For introverts and extroverts, finding new ways to make personal connections can help deal with the isolation. Make family breakfast a time to gather or schedule a family game nights and other special time together at home. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, social distancing from friends and family has likely presented some mental health challenges. Finding ways to connect with others can help with stress, depression, and anxiety during the pandemic. Make sure you check in with yourself regularly and reach out for help if you need it. In the MIT Technology Review, Abby Allheiser wrote, Lockdown was supposed to be an introvert's paradise. It's not. Calendars cleared by coronavirus are filling up with virtual happy hours, and some people are starting to feel exhausted. This was supposed to be the moment for introverts, the disaster preppers of our new COVID-ravaged social lives. Those who cherished their time alone at home were already experts at voluntary self-isolation. Once, backing out of happy hour at a bar to read a book made you a bad friend. Now, it's patriotic. In a TikTok from early March with 1.8 million views, an introvert watches the news singing along with Phil Collins. I've been waiting for this moment all my life. As the media tells him to stay home and avoid people. Introverts have published expert guides at staying at home and meditations on the joy of flaking on social plans. In The Atlantic, Andrew Ferguson wrote that COVID isolation has relieved considerable pressure on the introvert community the long-time hopeful practitioners of anti-social distancing. But as people began to adjust to isolation, they started to find ways to bring their outside social lives into their homes. Living rooms that were once a sanctuary from people-filled offices, gyms, bars, and coffee shops became all those things at once. Calendars that had been cleared by social distancing suddenly refilled as friends, family, and acquaintances made plans to sip quarantinis at Zoom happy hours, hold Netflix viewing parties, or just catch up over Google Hangouts. People are coping with the coronavirus pandemic by upending their lives and attempting to virtually recreate what they lost. The new version, however, only vaguely resembles what we left behind. Everything is flattened and pressed to fit into the confines of chats and video conference apps like Zoom, which was never designed to host our work and social lives all at once. The result for introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between is the bizarre feeling of being socially overwhelmed despite the fact that we are staying as far away from each other as we can. I was into it at first. It was kind of fun, says Tarek, a law student from New York. It was nice knowing people were going through this together. But three long days of classes on Zoom, virtual extracurricular meetings, and nightly check-ins with friends and family left him drained. Soon, he stopped picking up when his friends rang. He just needed some time alone, as we all do. Turning down invitations to talk to people during a global pandemic can simultaneously be needed self-care and something that makes you feel like a bad friend. After all, how do you tell your group chat of college friends that you just need a night alone at home when you're at home alone all the time? There's no way you can pass that off as having other plans, says Jaya Saxena, 
a staff writer at Eater, who is currently socially distancing with her spouse in her apartment in Queens, New York. The only excuse is, I don't want to, and no one wants to hear that right now. Extroverts and introverts are the subjects of many personality-driven online memes like astrology signs or Hogwarts houses. It can give a bit of an exaggerated impression. The reality is that introverts don't want to be alone all the time, and extroverts can appreciate moments of quiet. But the division exists as a way to describe how people gather their energy. Introverts charge up by having quiet time to process, and extroverts do it by socializing. Everybody is processing a lot of anxiety right now about the spread of coronavirus, says Pamela Rutledge, a social scientist and director of the Media Psychology Research Center. But their lives at home and the way they process that anxiety are vastly different. For some, staying at home means solitude and a lot of extra time. Others are trying to finish school, homeschool children, or work under difficult conditions. As one group looks for things to do, the other looks for a free moment to leave the home and hunt for toilet paper. Introverts socially distancing with others might feel an additional layer of stress even before that first virtual happy hour invitation, Rutledge notes. Staying at home with others places a burden on introverts because they are not wired for full-time interaction. Saxena doesn't think of herself as particularly introverted. She does have a tendency to overschedule herself when there are open restaurants to go to after work. But after sitting down one day to schedule another Zoom happy hour and seeing that she'd filled the next four nights of her calendar with virtual social gatherings, she realized she really wasn't getting much out of video chats. She needed a break. I feel like an asshole for feeling this way. I love my friends. I like talking to them, she says. And worse, she knows that these video hangouts have become a lifeline for others in a crisis. It feels like every interaction is a matter of everyone's mental health hinging on this thing. You don't want to let anyone down. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Everything feels like a meeting. Video chat has become the go-to substitute for many people's discarded social lives. The place where they can see the most of the people they can no longer be with. Zoom, FaceTime, and Google Hangouts are easy to use but they have a way of making everything feel like a meeting. At a happy hour of 10 people in a bar, you can settle into a side conversation, step away for fresh air, or listen to a conversation while nursing your drink. Virtual happy hours eliminate that extra space and do not necessarily allow for time, reflection, and processing, Jennifer Grigiel, an assistant professor of communications at Syracuse, told me in an email. It doesn't really allow for those pauses in conversation that you might experience or walks with friends. Stacy, who works for an ed tech company near Albany, knows how that feels. She used to meet friends a few times a week to play Dungeons and Dragons. Like Tarek, Stacy asked to be identified by her first name only. Now those physical games have moved online through the same laptop camera that provides a portal to all her work meetings. The game is still fun, but it's hard to relax. The video sessions have lag times. People speak over each other or not at all. We can't necessarily read body language, Stacy says. So there's people who will start to talk over each other and then nobody talks. Just that tiny aspect of not being able to understand and watch each other's body language, that minute lag. We don't have a normal for Zoom when it's used just as a conversation, says Rutledge. We have a meetings mental model 
which suggests meetings are scheduled, they last for a while, and you look reasonable and have your camera on. Video chats, phone calls, and game nights won't replace a hug or a shared meal, but there are at least ways to make the tools work a little better for those who feel drained. Tarek learned that turning off the ability to view himself on camera during Zoom lectures helped him feel less as though every video chat was an interview. Rutledge suggests eliminating the video altogether. In phone calls, you don't feel any length constraints. It might be long or short, and you can walk around, do other stuff, and are not being observed. And set time limits. It's okay to hang up. For others, structuring the calls might help. People might try cooking while Zooming or playing simple games, just to allow for more natural pauses and chatter. Folks might also consider going back to writing longer-form email to each other. But Grigiel cautioned against going back even further to letter writing. Not everyone is privileged enough to stay at home all day long and wonder how to best stay in touch with other friends online. As some manage Zoom social engagements and Instagram and sourdough starters, other people have to be out there delivering those letters. Do you want to Zoom? Do you want to take part in a virtual happy hour? Your dual nature needs to be nurtured. Some of us have alter egos or secret identities. We are now wearing masks and gloves in public, and that is only the outermost layer of the complex onion that you are. My own experience was that the gay community was much more accepting of living a closeted life when I was younger because I was in the closet, and so were an awful lot of other people I met who identified as gay. Life was different then, and it was much more arduous to be out than it is today. Not everywhere, of course. Meeting people was an altogether complex issue. You needed discretion to allay your nerves. Bars were oases that never provided a direct line of sight to and from the street in order to protect the identity of their patrons. We were also a little bit more forgiving of each other, understanding that everyone had their own path or journey or experience, and it was commonly accepted that we were pariahs. Imagine walking around knowing that people thought of you as a malignant drain on society. They still do. We just got smart and had gutsy leaders. Still do. We were thought of as tragic figures. At best, one-dimensional clowns, devious, deceptive, sleazy, dishonest, and completely untrustworthy. On a good day. Other places, let's say, were somewhat on the discreet side. Somewhat. From health clinics, one of which I was a patient at, where the doctor was rather insensitive and coldly institutional to me, as if I was a lab rat, to resource centers where you met up with people who acted suspicious of anyone who might be testing the waters. You didn't look gay or you didn't act gay. Maybe. I'm not saying it's true, but maybe sometimes they, they have a stereotypical prejudice. Maybe. Uh, so if you were testing the waters, and because they had to contend with deceptive hostility from those who had, and I will say, an irrational, deep-seated, issue-laden animus, and acted on it to unguarded, earnest out people trying to make life better for everyone who was LGBTQI while they acted in good faith. To even places like public parks where you could be entrapped in a sting, even if you were just strolling around to see what the cultural conditions were like, you never did anything untoward and acted above board. You had to hide this stuff. It wasn't as simple and histrionic as, say, you being married with kids and living a lie. And people would judge you harshly for myriad reasons connected to the cultures they were part of. You just weren't accepted in open society. 
and there was a constant threat against your well-being. Although I do recall one episode of Hill Street Blues, which, by the way, had an enormous amount of gay actors on it. It was one of the gayest TV shows of the 80s. Oh, man. Had a plot where a married cop struggled with coming out to identify the perpetrator because he happened to be at a gay bar during a mass murder. The episode was basically about a detective who was married with children who was gay, who was the only surviving witness to a mass murder in a gay bar. Much of the episode revolves around attempts by two other detectives to cover for him and his eventual decision to come forward formally as a witness. But something that dramatic wasn't all that common. First, when I started going to gay bars, I hesitated much of the time, so fearful of being exposed and having to expose myself to other gay men. To be truthful, be casually comfortable in my own skin, integrate my desire to socialize with other gay men with my awareness of the world around me, it really was like the beginning of Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? It was both an environment created to serve and protect the clientele. It was a safe haven. But all the time, I felt put off because I perceived that many people I met were disingenuous. Of course they were. They didn't know me. Maybe they were interested. Maybe they were not. Maybe they were a bit of each. Who knows? People who were either out or in the closet were not obliged to spill their guts, and I was apprehensive. Was this feeling of letting go allowing my one true nature to reveal itself? Was it truly part of me? Was I doing something that would send me to hell for eternity? Was it too late? Was I already on my way? Why did I want to be with these guys? I didn't like a substantial percentage of them because I just didn't like their individual personalities. Like everyone else, I didn't dislike them. I just did not feel a connection or a sense that one worthy connection could be made at the very same time I wanted to fulfill my very strong desires. Or they represented something that I was not aware of or prepared to deal with. Maybe they were more sophisticated. Maybe they were more hedonistic. Maybe they were dumb bunnies. They didn't outwardly care if I was good or bad or anything morally relativistic. They might have been any of these things, but they did not put that on display. They had their own reasons for going out, dressing the way they did, acting the way they did. And it was off-putting to me because it eroded my personal baseless perceptions of who I thought they ought to be. Nobody apologized for being themselves or wanting what they wanted. People I felt zero attraction to, who had their own style sense and self-confidence that I did not possess, had free reign and roamed around in those places that I naively assumed were for people who fit my mental construct. I had to be guarded with them, too. I thought they would just be superficial jerks I met in passing. So I, I did. I had to be aware that they could be somewhat ruthless and take advantage of me, or just indifferent, which is far colder. Yeah, not hustlers, just out gay men who didn't have the time or could not care less about me trying to find a way to fit into my new community. There were indeed amoral, drug-addicted, thieving, irresponsible, hard-hearted, selfish takers, but they were part of the landscape, in and among the guys who were really cute, really sweet and intelligent, well-read, cultured and pleasant, who wanted what you wanted, a non-stop orgy of cheap thrills and unforgettable pleasure, and abandonment before you tidied up and made your way back home where everyone had a distinct disdain for gayness. And you denied anything to do with being gay whatsoever, like you were fooling anybody, until you were finally ready to come out of that creaky old musty closet. 
Those guys existed then and they exist now. In those days, it was difficult to go through all of that Sturm and Drang and then roll it up and fit it back in the place you had it stored, then go back home like you just returned from a camping trip. When camping, you had to clean up your campsite. Even while you were camping, you could not be careless. You had to clean up after meals to avoid attracting bears. <laughs> Exception duly noted. Or insects, raccoons, etc. Any unwanted, annoying, or dangerous distraction. You did not come home with sleeping bags flapping out of the trunk and dirty utensils and unkempt tenting gear rattling around the back seat. You did need to be a cat on a hot tin roof, but you had to be aware because some of these guys could prey on you in many senses that they knew that you had to compartmentalize your experiences. By repetition and osmosis, the predators and hustlers could draw a beat on you and figure out at least some of your motivation right away. In my experience, most of the predators are very superficial, attracted to low-hanging fruit, the guys who are green and are really longing for companionship and want to gain some experience so they can look and act more in sync with their next companions. Those green guys were also terrified of any of a number of things coming to light, whether it be their feelings, desires, or activity. I remember being a newbie and then seeing newbies after I ran the gauntlet and inured myself to the predators and the hustler shtick. The newbies dressed differently than out guys. Their hair was different. Their clothes were different. Their stance was different. They were less, let's say, with it. And it showed. They stuck out like sore thumbs because they didn't know that just yet. They fumbled and stumbled, but hardly noticed it themselves because of the exhilaration of identifying yourself and knowing that life exists for real as a gay man was far more exciting than being made to feel small because you had a few social snags. They had a different look on their faces, as if they were looking for a pair of eyes that accepted and embraced them out of all the others in plain sight because they were insecure and needed some affirmation. And they were also terrified of being recognized by someone who was gay, who knew them, and was not held to any sense of confidentiality. Shudder. And without them, the very next day in their life would be ruined as they knew it. And all of this swirled around in my head, too. But I had to take that chance. I had to explore that world. I had to find my own water level. Because I was very insecure, I tended to see things myopically. Gay men who were basically indifferent to my individual internal struggle and were just leading their lives the way they deemed fit for themselves were both thoughtless and deliberately cruel when they ignored me. Me? Moi? But, but, but I am exposing this raw nerve for all to see. Me? The one who thinks he is the center of attention, wanted and otherwise. The guy who came all the way in from the burbs or after having a few with stray colleagues after work to mix and mingle with the guys who would be part of my personal journey. The guy who had no idea that there were so many guys who were better looking and in much more physically fit, attractive condition, who wore their clothes better than me and groomed better than me. Yeah. I needed to shore up those reserves of steeled nerves to come out. I had to gain inner strength, and boy, oh boy, was it ever easy to identify with any character who had an alter ego or a secret identity. For me, anyway. I just naturally assumed everyone who was gay did that, except for the guys who were, as one older sage put it, out from hatching. They were never in. Couldn't care less either. So, going back, you really, really had to get out there to connect. There was no other way. Not only was there no internet or mobile devices, but you had to put yourself on display, especially if you had to go someplace and use a payphone. 
Remember using payphones as a matter of course? There was always a line. Anybody walking by could see you and make the association that you were in a gay bar or outside a gay bar that had a telephone on the sidewalk outside the gay bar. And you were with a good few other gay men. I needed to be brave. I don't know if people remember this, but pay phones outside of gay bars, were, it, was, it was such a normal everyday thing because there was only one or two inside and everywhere you went, if it was popular, there was always a line of people waiting to use the phone. So if you were a little bit nervous, you did not want anybody to recognize you. On the other hand, some of us are home buddies by nature or just less outgoing. As an aside, that's an old-fashioned expression. That Tim, he's outgoing. I don't hear that being used all that much anymore. Anyway, as home buddies, we tend to find things we like to nurture, learn about, grow, everything from plants to skills, etc. We put that outward-facing mask on every day when we are donning our work attire. We might be private people. There is a reason people close doors. They want to separate themselves from the world outside. They don't want people to see too much. My problem is that I overshare. I come out all the time. You can't do it just once. It is a continual process. I believe in being steadfast and consistent. I out myself at work. I out myself informally and formally. Who wants to be Fredo Corleone and absentmindedly give yourself away anyway? That's nerve-wracking. I'm going to end with something written in 2009 for Gizmodo by Alyssa Johnson. Secret identities. Do we really need them? More importantly, do superheroes? And how do they work? Do they? Secret identities are sort of a messy idea. The definition is apparently a persona developed in order to keep your true identity secret. Which, okay, is a workable definition until you start asking questions like, if Clark Kent develops Superman to protect his loved ones, is Supes the secret identity? And after Ralph Dibney told the world he was elongated man, does that make his secret identity just an identity? And does that mean it's okay for his foes to call him Ralph when he's in costume? Because as bad as it is being taken down by a guy who goes by elongated man, it's probably even worse being brought to justice by some guy named Ralph. So I was going to talk about why certain heroes use certain identities, but the more I thought about it, the more I feel that the real question is how a superhero finds a way to make his hero identity and his everyman identity, because sometimes it's hard to tell which is the real secret one, work in tandem with each other. So, we might be harsh on those of us who are closeted, mainly, I think because of the duplicitous nature and behavior of some of those who achieve notoriety as public figures or play a role in your community and your belief systems, then betray trust with actions that are often lumped in or have been long conflated with gay identity because of the actual secular sexual conduct that can be part of that broken trust maintain an anti-gay stance in public, and work against our best interests. Yucky. Icky, for sure. They are very human, very dishonest, utterly conflicted, and they may indeed be villains, but they do not represent the overwhelming majority of the LGBT community in or out of the closet. And ultimately, it is a desperate struggle for most closeted people around the world just to survive without destroying themselves or being destroyed by adversaries. As long as you don't intentionally act to hurt the very people you identify with publicly or privately, you are who you are in your own time. But 
if you intentionally act to hurt the very people you identify with publicly or privately, then all bets are off. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.